myself, I wonder if there's anyone watching this on YouTube. <laughs> it's great. Doing it in person is the best way. The Christian life is a, is a personal experience with the individual, but we do it corporately with each other. Which is why our peace today is so important, because encouragement in the Christian life assumes that we're walking corporately together, that we care for each other. Whoa. I... Did I? Is it better now? Can you hear me now? Right. I won't start all over again. I, it, the, the text we're looking at assumes that we're walking together corporately, that we need encouragement, because the Christian life is not an easy one. It's a pilgrimage through tough times as well as joyous times. But it's not, we haven't arrived home as yet. That's what Paul assumes we understand. I remember when um, my wife and I um, left the UK to go to the States for five years of postgrad studies. And we went there, I realized on reflection in our early 20s, with a certain arrogance that somehow we were going to make it anyway. You know, we had saved up the money. The money was the important thing. All the, the ducks would be in line. We'd make it through the five years we'd come back to the UK. And I discovered within days of getting to the university, paying for our first semester of tuition, that actually we had misunderstood how much money we'd need for a year. And we'd misunderstood the visa requirements, which basically we thought said, once you'd completed a year, you'd better go off campus, get a good job that would easily pay for the remaining five years. Uh, we discovered that actually the visa requirement was, yes, you could work after one year, but you'd have to work on campus cutting grass and cleaning dishes. And it doesn't pay a lot of money, let me tell you. Well, I was so horrified and shocked. Immediately, I blamed God. We had gone to the other side of the world, and he'd sort of abandoned us. And here's a, here's a bizarre bit of logic I went through. I decided to stop praying. You know, if God was going to treat us this way, I wasn't going to relate to him. And actually, as childish and immature as that probably sounds, it actually took a godly, gracious professor at the university and a good friend that I met on the campus to remind me that God has the whole thing in control. He cares for us even when it looks like he's not doing what we expected. I now have the privilege in our church at Millmead to be on a rota of older men who disciple younger men. Every so often I get the privilege of spending a year with some guy, usually same sort of age as when I went to the States, early 20s. And I discovered they have exactly the same problems that I did. Now, I'm not sure this is a male issue. I think it's just a human issue. To realize on the Christian walk that you're not in control. Because we live in a highly secular environment, we're constantly given tools to control life. But life has a wonderful way of reminding us you're not in control. And if a pandemic has taught us anything, no one is in control. This world is unknown. It's fallen. It does all sorts of things. And life does all sorts of things that we don't understand. And my hope is today that wherever you are on your level of encouragement, the Lord will just help you to ramp it up. 
because the people you walk with, the person to the left of you and the person to the right of you, may well be dealing with things that your words of grace can help them with enormously. The passage has been well read to us, so let me just give you a sense of where we're going with this one. My that one? Is it on the black slide? Go back one. Forward. There we go. Right. Our verse is a simple one. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as you are doing. Paul assumes we're doing this at some level. And he just wants to get us to move to the next level. But the grand theme that Paul is talking to the Thessalonians about is about the second coming of our Lord. And the Thessalonians know he's not coming back as a lamb or a baby in a cradle. He's coming back to the final judge and jury for all mankind in which he will take some human beings into a new heaven and a new earth. And so what we're going to do is just a two-step in this, this sermon. I'm going to just get you just to look at the context. Context in chapter 4 and chapter 5. We won't go through the whole of it. I'll just highlight what you need to understand. And the second step, we're going to say, what does this mean, walking this sort of walk, walking this sort of talk in the 21st century? I want you to imagine, if you would, that we are... You probably did this. Uh, if you had a home with uh, stairs, sat at the top of the stairs and you heard mum or dad on the phone. And the trouble is, when you're overhearing them on the phone, you don't hear the question on the other side. You only hear the answer. And you have to guess what the question is. When you're reading letters that Paul's writing to specific churches, you're having the same experience. You don't know exactly the question that Thessalonians have asked Paul. Maybe they sent him a messenger. Maybe they sent him a letter. We understand the Lord is coming back, but there's some issues we need to deal with. And in chapter 4, they're simply asking what we think is the question. What about those who have already died? What will happen to them when the Lord returns? And the bottom line for Paul in chapter 4 is relax. Those who have walked with the Lord in life are now resting in peace with Him. They have completed their pilgrimage. You don't have to worry about them. Treat them as lights in the, on the horizon lives, Christian lives, that encourage you to keep going on the pilgrimage. And at the end of chapter 4, he's going to use the same encouragement as he does with our verse. He's just going to say, encourage one another. Encourage one another with those who have lived godly lives, who've gone to be with the Lord. You are as safe as they are. And then he moves into chapter 5. And it appears, as we sit on the landing at the top of the stairs, as if the Thessalonians have asked a question that has something to do with the tough nature, the tension of the journey for the pilgrim. If it's good to know that when you die, you're in the presence of God, what about us now who are struggling on the journey? The journey can be painful. It can bring disillusionment. We don't always understand what's happening. What happens to us? Now, this is where it would be helpful if you took your lens and just 
tuned it down a bit and let's look at some of the detail. Because in verses 1 to 3, Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, those who are outside the kingdom, not you dear Christians, for those people, he says, they'll be saying to each other, peace and safety, everything's fine. And the Lord's return will be like a thief in the night. They didn't expect it, they're totally shocked by it. But that shouldn't be the case for you. So they know now that the Lord is going to return, but it's not going to be announced for everyone long before he arrives. For some, there will be a total shock. And then in verses 4 to 11, to our verse, he says, but not for you, dear brothers and sisters. You who are within the kingdom, you will understand there are certain signs of the times. You will, maybe you can't pinpoint the date, but you are aware things are getting tense. And so he simply says, if that is the case, don't be casual, but stay alert, or as the NIV puts it here, alert and self-controlled. In other words, don't get distracted by things that distract us. Have a pension, have a mortgage, have insurance, have a career. These are all good things, but they're just signposts pointing you towards what's really important. So don't get distracted and become so worldly-minded you forget what you're supposed to be doing whilst in the kingdom. And at the end of this, he will say, at the end of our section, just before our verse, he's going to say, so don't fear. Relax, just like I told you, those who've died and passed into the presence of the Lord, the Lord is with you too whilst you're on the journey. And that's when he gets to this verse of ours. Therefore, because of what I've told you about those who have died, because of what I've told you about the security you have on the pilgrimage, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as you're now doing. Okay. I'm going to step away from the pulpit, because you know the thing with pulpits is, psychologically in our culture, they give the impression that that you have the authority which the text gives to the preacher, but when you apply it into the 21st century, well, it's perhaps not as... I'm not going to tell you the Lord told me to tell you what I'm about to tell you. It's what I think is appropriate to the text. So when it comes to applying it, when we walk now from step one, understanding the text, into application in the 21st century, how do we walk this sort of talk today? I want to introduce you to a scale I didn't discover in the Bible. That's why I'm standing here. I didn't discover this in the Bible. It's called the Engels Scale of Missions. Some people call it the Engels Scale of Evangelism. Engels was a godly missiologist. Nothing to do with the Engels who wrote the Communist Manifesto. Totally <laughs> different person. This Engels was a missiologist loved the Lord and wanted to remind the church that when you choose your techniques of evangelism and discipleship, be aware of your audience. There are some people deep in the kingdom of darkness, minus four. I imagine Richard Dawkins is somewhere at minus four. If you're going to talk to Richard Dawkins, don't invite him to an alpha course. He'll probably slap you. And probably quite rightly, too. But it might be a good idea to sit down with him and have a cup of coffee. Get to know him. See if the Lord might use your friendship 
to draw him to the right-hand side. The, according to the creators of the Alpha Course, Alpha Course is designed for people who are minus one to minus one and a half. In other words, Jesus is no longer just a swear word for them. They're a little fascinated by this person and his people are interesting. They're not willing to commit, but they're willing to see what it's about. By God's grace, they step over the line at zero and they move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And some of the mistakes that Christians make is they forget that we go through growing in Christ-likeness, maturity. Young Christians at plus one, you have to treat them as young Christians at plus one. Don't walk up to a new Christian and say, here's a commentary on the book of Revelation, I suggest you read it. What? You know, they'll flip, they'll think, that's it, I can't, I can't be a Christian, this is overwhelming, it's too much stuff. Give them time, be gracious to them, help them. Because with time and growing in Christ-likeness, which the Lord wants us to do, why? Not because it is our salvation, it's because it returns our humanity to us and it makes us useful in his mission into the world. Why? Because the gospel we preach needs to also come to us in flesh. In other words, we're gradually becoming free samples of Jesus to everyone who wants to know what is your God like? Not just in your words, but in your life. Now, of course, with time, according to Engels, we grow up, we become more like Christ, and maybe plus three, plus four, we might want to do something we'd never have done in plus one. We really want to get to know the Lord. We really want to experience what it means to walk deeply with Christ. Okay, let me introduce you to two men who you can place on Engels' scale. The reason I want you to know these two men is because they're both ethnic Berbers. Now you might say, what's their ethnicity got to do with it? Because the man on the left-hand side, when he discovered the man on the right-hand side is an ethnic Berber, he was fascinated to read everything he wrote. Albert Camus is a 20th century philosopher, a Berber who moved from present-day Algeria to France. The man on the right-hand side is from the 5th century, 1500 years before Albert Camus, Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, who moved from North Africa to the center of the Roman Empire and then up to Milan where he came under Ambrose, the great preacher in the Cathedral of Milan, became a Christian and then returned to North Africa where they saw he was moving up the angle scale and they made him a bishop. Now, Albert Camus, realizing one of the greatest influences of church history, was also a Berber like himself, read Augustine's writings, but rejected Augustine's God, wanted nothing to do with him, nothing at all. Both of these men wrote about restlessness. Now, it's important to keep in mind that Augustine is the man that we often quote who said, you'll never find your rest and peace until you find your rest and peace in God. We all have a God-shaped hole within us that only God can fill. 
Now what Augustine did not mean is that when you step into the kingdom of light, your solutions, you'll find them. You'll have no more problems, you'll have peace. He just meant that you'll find the compass for the journey and the north point of the compass is Jesus Christ. To grow up and become more like him. You're in the kingdom, now just allow your humanity to return to you and become useful in God's mission. So, Albert Camus, much like Augustine, knew restlessness. And Albert Camus <coughs> said, let's get real. There are no gods anymore. We live in a secular society. He's writing in the 1960s. Western Europe is becoming highly secular. The main speakers are now atheists, not Christians. And Albert Camus said, restlessness in the 20th century, and Richard Dawkins would agree with him in the 21st century, is meaningless living. In other words, if there's no God out there, if you and I have just evolved from some amoeba in a primordial soup billions of years ago, your life is utterly meaningless. It has no purpose at all. As Richard Dawkins would say, the universe is utterly indifferent to your existence. No one cares. You will die and just become food for the worms. Get over it, says Richard Dawkins. And Albert Camus would agree with him. And Albert Camus said that life in a secular world with no God out there is like the life of Sisyphus. Now, if you know Sisyphus from Greek mythology, Sisyphus had cheated the gods. He was a mortal. He cheated the gods twice, cheated them of death. So the gods decided to punish Sisyphus. And his eternal job, for all eternity, was to roll a rock up a mountain with the purpose and meaning to the rolling of getting it to the top of the mountain, victory. But the gods played a game on Sisyphus. Just before he got it to the top of the mountain, the boulder moved out of his hand, rolled back down the valley. Sisyphus had to go back down the valley, roll the boulder up. Just before he got there, rolls back down. This was Sisyphus's meaningless, eternal existence. And Albert Camus said, that's what restlessness in the 21st century is. Your life is meaningless. So find meaning in some meaningless thing like getting a job, like having a career, getting a degree. It's all meaningless, but try and stop blowing your brains out when you discover there's no meaning in life. Now, Albert, uh, now Augustine knew what Albert Camus was going through because he went through the same thing. But by God's grace, God brought him into the kingdom of light. And Augustine said, now it's not that suddenly I'm at peace. Now my restlessness has changed. I found meaning. I found meaning in Jesus Christ. I found meaning on the journey. But the pilgrimage is not easy. Why? Because I'm still not home. As a Christian, your heart is now swinging in that north direction of Jesus Christ, you know, you smell those beautiful fragrance from the kitchen of a new heaven, new earth. You know one day there'll be no more pain, no more crying. You will be embraced. 
you'll be at peace. But not now. Now you have to live with the struggle of the fall, not only in the world that is often dangerous, but also the fall and the consequence of the fall in your own life. The own, your own stupid decisions you make have consequences. Pain, disillusionment, unanswered prayer. These become the pilgrim's journey, but we do it together. That's why Paul said to the Thessalonians, you need to encourage each other because you're experiencing a restlessness that will not go away until you step into the very presence of God, which he spoke about in chapter 4, about those who have died. Okay. We're coming to the final furlong now. We, we, we saw our verse within the greater context of the second coming of our Lord. We looked at the context and then we said, how does this apply to 21st century living? Why do we need to encourage each other? Then we return to the pulpit here because I want to tell you, if you're wondering to yourself, hang on a minute, Ian, where is the gospel, the good news, in the struggle of the journey? And I want to say to you that surely it's right there in the theme of this text. Our Lord is returning, and he's not returning as a lamb. And the good news is, you can be on the right side of that story when he returns. Paul obviously assumes the Engels scale. He assumes that we know we were born on the left-hand side, in the kingdom of darkness, and by God's grace, he is moving us to the right-hand side. <coughs> but even on the right-hand side, we still struggle. We still need to grow into the ways of Christ. If you've ever met a really godly person, I was discipled by a lovely, lovely man of God. I saw in his life the sort of things I wanted to become. And that's the lovely thing about it. That's the encouragement when we see in others what our heart is calling us towards to grow up and become like Jesus Christ. <clears throat> You see, according to Augustine, God doesn't give us the solution to our problems when we step into the kingdom. What he does is one better. He gives us himself for the journey ahead. Listen to Augustine. He wrote this in his Confessions, which Albert Camus read and found fascinating. This is what Augustine said. You, O God, set us firmly on your track, comforting us, and saying, run the race, I will carry you. I will carry you clear to the end. And even at the end, I am still carrying you. Friends, we know as Christians that we're never going to get from anywhere on the left-hand side to anywhere on the right-hand side without God's grace. It's not going to happen. It's God's grace that carries us. It's God's grace that when we step into the kingdom is converted into a compass that shows us compass north point and he continues to carry us. This is the God who ran out to meet us prodigals when we just, just reluctantly turned our head in his direction. He ran out to embrace us. And he carries us all the way to the end. Why?
Should we walk away from here saying, I want to develop my habit of encouraging other people? I want to say, first of all, it's because this is a tough journey. Don't kid each other and don't ever give a young disciple the sense that this is going to be easy. It's tough. It's tough because we're still falling. <coughs> Secondly, encourage them because we live in a fallen world full of a whole lot of things that frighten us and we realize how fragile we are and how fickle we are and how damaged we are. And thirdly, allow the letter to the Thessalonians to remind you we're on a pilgrimage and this cannot be done on your own. The pandemic gave many Christians the dangerous feeling that Christianity could just be switched on on YouTube and switched off and I can just go about my own individual walk with the Lord. It wasn't. It was a temporary experience. Thank the Lord for technology. We need each other. We need real life human beings around us who can see our lives from an angle we cannot see. Who are able to say things like, I can see Christ being formed in you. The chunky block of marble that came into the kingdom. I can see that through the pain and the struggle, Christ is chipping away and something of Christ is coming out of the marble. Friends, in the words of Paul, therefore, let's encourage each other and build each other up just as we are doing. But now let's take it to the next level. Amen. Amen.